Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, when he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Good morning. morning. Since the beginning of our church, as Jim said, we've had the joy of going through the book of Philippians together. In this wonderful letter, we saw such themes as friendship in the family of faith, joy despite suffering, and the unity of God's people, giving us endless reasons to rejoice in Christ. But this week, we begin a journey through the book of Amos. And let me tell you, Amos is quite a departure from Philippians in the sense of its tone. If Philippians is like a challenging, encouraging hug to help us to press on, Amos is more like a rebuking kick to sit back and to contemplate the justice of God. It's a letter that should cause us to tremble. Amos deals with themes such as evil and injustice in the world. And God's sense of justice amidst it. It deals with right and wrong worship of God. It deals with comfortable, disillusioned sinners who think they are in the right with God. And it shakes them out of their stupor. And even with this drastic tone change, make no mistake, this is the same loving, just, and holy God that we see throughout all the Bible. One attribute about God is that He does not change. This is called His immutability. If we look in Malachi 3.6, God affirms, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. That shadow of turning is referring to the different phases of the sun that we see from our vantage point. It's rising, it's setting, it's rotating, constantly revolving around the earth. God does not change in this way. If He is the constant rock, we are more like jello. We change all the time. We are up and down. One day we're feeling good, next we're down. One day we do good, the next day we mess up. One season we are thriving, and the next we are full of anxiety. Content one day with full bellies, only to find ourselves later hangry. The consistency of God is something that should cause every Christian to rejoice. That He stays true, even when we don't. Where our culture can get confused about God is thinking and staying, um, thinking that this, this, staying the same, His consistency means that there is always a universal acceptance from God no matter what. But by the very nature of God's goodness, He cannot tolerate evil. A just God cannot accept injustice. Just as a loving parent would never support their children's crippling addiction, a just God cannot accept what is not right. That would be unloving of Him. So at the same time, the gracious love of God 
overflows and evil injustice, the fact that it is present, kindles his wrath. If we think about it, we are like this as well, for we are made in his image. We don't love or pursue justice perfectly as he does, but we share these same attributes. And the beauty of the Bible is that in it we have the whole counsel of God. Different books, different times in redemptive history that emphasize different aspects of God's never-changing attributes. Perhaps you've never heard a sermon series through Amos. I haven't. Uh, for a large part of my life, I was more familiar with the famous cookie than I was the now-famous prophet. It's not that common of a book from pulpits, but I believe it will challenge us as we consider the God of this universe in his response to injustice. How he responds to the hypocrisy of his people and how he deals with evil as Lord over all the nations. Let's pray this morning that we would hear from this never-changing God who is our solid rock, who perfectly judges and perfectly loves. Let's pray. Dear God, as we open your word, I pray that um, you would grow our hearts in love and in adoration and in understanding. God, that we would see that you are immensely big, uh, that you are beyond our comprehension, and yet you have chosen to love us. Thank you for the grace and the mercy we have in you. Be with us this morning as we hear your word. In your name we pray. Amen. To give us a general quick breakdown of the book, we'll see that the book of Amos is divided into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2, we have judgment against the surrounding nations of Israel, and then Israel itself. In chapters 3 to 6, we have three almost like lawsuits, these covenant lawsuits, um, oracles of exile and judgment that Amos brings, kind of prophesying what will happen to them and where they have failed to uphold the covenant. And then in chapters 7 through 9, we see five visions that God gives Amos in an account of Amos's confrontation with Amaziah, who was the high priest of Bethel. So that's the breakdown of the book. And so today we're going to serve as an introduction to the book, and then we're going to be looking at the first two verses together. In verse 1, we're going to see God's unlikely messenger. We dig into the life of Amos, see who he is and the time of history in which he lives. And next, we'll see the roar of the lion in verse 2. The roar of judgment comes from God himself. So God's unlikely messenger in verse 1, and the thunderous roar of the lion in verse 2. In verse 1, we read, These are the words of Amos who is among the shepherds of Tekoa. So who is this Amos guy? Besides being the author of this book, we know very little about him. What we do know is that he was a shepherd from Tekoa. And on top of being a shepherd, if we look into chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdman, herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So on top of his credentials so far, we know that he took care of sheep and that he grew and tended figs. That's what he's got on his resume. So in order to understand Amos, we need to understand the time in which he lived. He lived in a time of national disunity. What used to be the 12 tribes of Israel making up one nation split in 931 B.C. when the northern tribes of Israel rebelled 
against King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. There was civil war and unrest. And from this split nation, it divided into two monarchs. Ten tribes in the north, what is now called Israel, and two tribes of the south, making up the kingdom of Judah. And we read in verse 1, These were the days which he saw concerning Israel. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we got a divided kingdom, Uzziah ruling as king of Judah in the south, and Jeroboam, king of Israel in the north. And giving further detail in our text, we see this happen two years before the earthquake. This note just serves as a historical marker, helping us to better know the exact time period. Around 760 B.C. is when this huge earthquake hit the Middle East, and many viewed this act as one of divine judgment. Another prophet, Zechariah, mentions this same earthquake. They might have mentioned 760, maybe the same way that we say 2020, and everyone just knows the events of that time. Something went down that year, Well, 760. <clears throat> These two monarchs, Judah and Israel, they had been steeped in hostility since this divide for 150 years. But for a season in history, these two kingdoms put their issues behind them, uh, and, and they were not in open war. It wasn't friendly. They still didn't like each other, but there was some cooperation. And so during this time of relative peace, Israel's enemies are weakened from fighting each other. Egypt and Babylon, they were not strong mil militarily. Syria, which had troubled them in the past, had been taken over by the Assyrians. And this gave Israel this opportunity to expand its border, take back its lands. They were safe on all sides from all threats, and they had such economic prosperity. Like in a board game when your opponents are distracted by each other while you quietly grow in power. You're gathering resources, gathering strength. During this time of prosperity, Jeroboam II, in less than 25 years, was able to turn Israel from a nation that was declining, and he transformed it to one of the great powers of his day. This kingdom became so prosperous under Jeroboam II, we see the inhabitants had both winter and summer houses. We see uh, so, so abundant in chapter 6, their beds are adorned with ivory. And this prosperity led to a prevailing belief that the favor of God was on them. You see, the people of Israel, they were God's covenant people. They were chosen to be his distinct ambassadors for God to the rest of the nations. In Deuteronomy 7, we see, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But they were deceived because they thought that their abundance, they had God's blessing. But in their abundance, they had forsaken the very God who had preserved them, the God who chose them as his treasured possession. They began to worship other pagan deities. Golden calves were made. Altars were, were built to all sorts of pagan gods. The people, they were very spiritual. They had all sorts of religious activity. But what they had was a synchronistic approach to religion. That means they had all of these pagan rituals side by side with their worship of the one true God. 
So in this, they clung to the words of Moses that best suited them. They counted on the promises of God, but they perverted them. And they made up a God in their own head. And it didn't just end there. A principle that we should take in mind is that false worship will always lead to injustice. When we don't love God rightly, we won't love people rightly. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, <clears throat> we see, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' words to, to love God is the first and greatest commandment. And from that love, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we, we become like what we worship. And as we have a right worship of God, we're going to treat people rightly. But as people turn to lustful, vengeful, narcissistic, hedonistic idols, these false gods, they became like their gods. But remarkably, even though all this false worship existed, they still had this confidence and superiority that they were God's people. They anticipated the day of the Lord's return because in their mind, the Lord was coming back to judge all the pagan nations around them. They had thought that they were right, but they were far from Him. They were in danger, and they didn't even know it. We see, humans are designed to worship. Even the staunchest of atheists, they worship something. It may not be a deity, but there are things in life that act as our functional gods. Things in which we would place our trust. And Israel, as they took kind of this mix and match approach, adding in different objects of their worship on top of God, I can't help but wonder what types of functional gods we may be tempted to muddle our worship with. <clears throat> Researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill took a close look at the religious beliefs of American teenagers. And they found that the faith that they held was described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. So big words there, but we'll, we'll explain what they mean. So moralistic, essentially, God wants me to be a good person. Don't do bad things. Therapeutic, man, when I'm in trouble, God's there to help me. I need you, God. All right, I'm here to help you. I'll be your counselor. And then deism, opposed to theism, where, where God is personal and loving. Deism is like he's kind of waiting there when I need him. He's, he's distant. And so from this religion, moralistic therapeutic deism, a couple principles they drew that were common in, in, in this study. That, that God exists and created the world and watches over human life on earth. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. This description, this more or less, this God of moralistic therapeutic deism is more like a genie that we would summon to fulfill our needs. This is not the God of the Bible. This is a God we are comfortable with and if we, if we have created in our own heads. 
God has revealed Himself in creation through His Son and by His Word. Let's make sure that our worship is of the one true God and not mixed with beliefs that we would like to be true about Him. And so here, amidst this backdrop of false worship, Amos, like a sheriff in a western walking into a town that is overrun by outlaws, God's unlikely messenger, not trained to be a prophet, no son of a prophet, just a shepherd who grew figs, used of God to deliver a message that nobody wanted to hear. So Amos lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was called to go north to Israel to deliver this message. And Tekoa, where he lived, was very close to the border between the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so during his travels, you know, as he was going, tending sheep, growing figs, he got to see firsthand all the injustices, all the false worship of the surrounding nations and, and in both kingdoms. Amos did not go looking to be a prophet of God. God made him a prophet. God gave him this message in verse 1, he says, which he saw concerning Israel. Isn't it great when we contemplate the types of people that God chooses? That he delights to use the regular. He can use anyone, no matter their education, their background, their checkered past. Shepherds were one of the lowest rungs of social standing. I don't think fig, fig growers were much higher. God is going to use this humble man to boldly call out the wealthy who are deceived, to call out those of highest rank. I think of the response given by the officials to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had this boldness and authority, not because of their qualifications, but because they had been with Jesus. Amos' most enduring trait is that he was faithfully close with God. I'll say it every chance I get because it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God does this all the time. There's no such thing as spiritual elite in God's economy. The weak and foolish things of this world, He loves to use for His glory. Beloved, in your weakness, in your shortcomings, in your perceived lack of skill, or maybe you don't think you have anything to offer, never doubt that you can be used of God mightily. We don't need to worry about what we have or what we don't have. We just need to be sure that we are close to Him. We long to make disciples. We long to build a community and display His truth, love, and beauty. But we will never accomplish these things if we don't first treasure Him as King. And so Amos faithfully goes on behalf, on behalf of God to Bethel. And next, we're going to see in verse 2, the thunderous roar of judgment. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. Amos lets them know that this is the Lord Himself who gives authority to this message. And he uses the Hebrew covenant name Yahweh for God. This would remind them that they were God's special people. 
and of all that God had done for them, bringing them out of Egypt, delivering them time and time again, manna from heaven, supplying their every need. This great roar like a mighty lion comes from Zion. Mount Zion was a hill in Jerusalem, but it's also representative of God's place of rule, His residence. We see in Psalm 76 that His dwelling place is in Zion. Psalm 9, that we're singing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Israel had rejected Jerusalem as the only appropriate place of worship. They built their own shrines in Bethel. And from this place, it is from this place that the right temple, the right place of worship of God from which God's judgment comes. And this voice of judgment is not just issued to Israel, but to all the earth. We see this, that the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Carmel was a lush garden land, a place of high elevation and one of the most prosperous places. And these places are included to let us know that God's judgment will be complete in its totality. From the lowly pastures of the shepherds to the top of the most prosperous mountain, judgment is coming for all. Amos' message is the ear-shattering thunder from a lightning strike before the oncoming storm. It was not just God's people who would be judged. God created every human heart for His glory, and He will judge all the nations as their rightful Creator and King. He rules over all the earth, and He will not tolerate false worship of anything else. God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Israel desired this day of the Lord, His coming return. But we'll see later in Amos, in God's Word, Amos 5 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Is it, it is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? His return would not be a day of rejoicing. It would be a day of dread. And you may sit here this morning with a question in your mind, wondering, am I guilty? Is God going to judge me? And the answer to that question, without a doubt, is that yes, in your flesh, you are guilty. And yes, He is going to judge you. We are all guilty. We inherited our sin nature when we were born as humans. Ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of that apple, rebelling against God's rule has been natural to us. It's, it's what we do. It's hardwired in us. And none of us is love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and none of us has loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are not unlike these people who turn to their other gods, these nations who oppress others out of greed. And one day, we are all going to give an account for our living. 2 Corinthians 5 reads that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this judgment, as much as we won't like it, it will not be according to our standards of right and wrong. 
It will be according to God's perfect standard. The righteousness of God is the standard we will be judged by. We see in 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We will give an account for all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all the ways that we've run away from God who made us to be with Him. Moses a prophet who was used mightily of God when he was in the presence of Almighty God and all his grandeur and glory. We read in Hebrews that indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the terror we should feel when confronted with a perfect, holy, and righteous God who stands in judgment of all nations. You may be convinced this morning that you are not a sinner. Many of them were convinced as well. I'll ask you, what are you worshiping this morning? What in your life has your supreme devotion? Something is there. Something fills that void. If you're finding your ultimate fulfillment in anything other than Jesus, you have bought into a lie. But there is another messenger that would come And much like Amos, he was a humble servant. And much like Amos, he spoke with an otherworldly authority with a message from God. He spoke of a coming judgment to people who claimed the promises of God, but were sinfully deceived. And some, when they heard this message, they would respond in denial and rejection, while others heard this message, they were softened, and they turned away from their sins and rejoiced to obey the king. But this messenger was different. He was sent of God to live a life without sin. A life that perfectly honored and worshipped the one true God. He was sent to live a life that abhorred evil. And he perfectly cared for others. He perfectly fought to achieve justice. And he lived a life that we can never live. And instead of just warning them, instead of just rebuking them, and calling out their errors, In judgment, he would willingly give up his life. He would willingly be tortured and walk to the cross and be crucified for the sins of his people. He would absorb the wrath of the holy and righteous roaring lion against sin so that we would not have to. So that we wouldn't die in our sins. And that we wouldn't worship false gods. So that we wouldn't oppress or commit injustice against our neighbor. But it did not end with his death. He didn't just dive in front of us, shielding us from the wrath of God. And and that was the end. No, his sacrifice was unlike any other that had ever been given. He rose again in power and strength from the dead, showing his supremacy as completely worthy of our trust. This is the strength that all Christians walk in. This is the hope that all Christians have. We read in Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amos tended flocks, but Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, who satisfied the wrath of God once and for all, and would turn for all who would turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Him will be saved. Saved from eternal condemnation in hell. Saved from the wrath to come. Saved from living this life for the shallow vacuum of self. And even better than these things, in a great exchange, their sin is taken from them and attributed to Christ. And they are given the righteousness of Christ. So that when they stand before the roaring lion, they no longer hold up their sin. They no longer hold up their feeble good works. They hold up the perfect righteousness of Jesus. There is no longer any condemnation for them. And now, redeemed, they get to live for Him and for His glory, sharing His wonderful news far and wide that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. As we close, I want us to consider a few things that this book should be put on full display for us. First, is that God is over all. He will judge the nations, but His judgment is most severe for the people of God. Just as Jesus rebuked the religious of His day, the ones who knew the promises of God and disregarded them, the ones who knew the grace shown by God on them and still trampled others underfoot, who still chose to love their sin, they will be held to a higher standard. From those who much is given, much is expected. Judgment will not only come for the people of God, it will come there first. Next, just as we become like what we worship, we can be assured that a proper love of God will always lead to a right love of people. Worship of false gods always leads to injustice, and worship of the one true God will always lead to justice. Many times we focus on loving people more, but far too often what is lacking is our love for God. If we love God rightly, we will identify with His heart and be driven in self-sacrificial love for others, becoming like that which we worship. A shepherd who would go after the sheep and lay down his life for them. Next, as we think about the people of Israel and the sins they committed frequently, there were adultery and social injustice. As we think about the problems in our broken world and how we fix them, we see that Israel's root problem is the same as ours. It was spiritual. They were religious, but only superficially. And lastly, I want us to think on the mercy of God as we go through this book. The Lord had warned Israel of their sin. Later we'll see that He sent trials to them. He sent hunger, thirst, blight, locusts, plagues, military defeat, all to show them of their unfaithfulness, to convict them. In sending Amos, this is an act of love that He is not just ending them then and right there. He is patient 
He is long-suffering with us. And even in his judgment, he allows some time for us to turn from our ways and acknowledge him as rightful king. And sure enough, just as Amos told them, just as the lion roared, in the near future, the Assyrians would grow in power and they would conquer Israel. They would devastate the nation of Israel. They would take them into captivity, subjecting them to all sorts of things. God would use the surrounding nations to judge even his own people. And although God's people forsook the covenant in their sinfulness, God in his goodness would stay true to preserve a remnant of his people. The book of Amos is as bleak and as full of judgment as it may be. It ends with a glimmer of hope amidst the dreary reality of sin. Amos 9 Chapter 9, 14 and 15. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God is faithful to his covenant people. He purges the sinful among them, but he restores the faithful. God's judgment could have been swift and over in a second once they turned away. But sending them Amos was an act of love in hopes that they would turn, pleading with them to turn. The great lion in Zion still roars today. He still roars in judgment. And he demands that the nations worship him rightly and walk in obedience to his ways. How do you receive that message this morning? What does your heart respond with? It's not just Israel that has rebelled against her maker. It's, it's personal. It's more personal than that. It's me and it's you. The king of the universe will not be mocked. Facing the judgment of God when the, when the people were trembling under the weight of Amos' words, he gives them simple instruction. God says, seek me and live. And the same instruction stands for us. The lion roars from Zion. Seek him and live. Let's pray. God, We don't always understand your ways. Your ways are higher than us, but we take such great comfort that you are a good God. That you will enact perfect justice on this earth and in your time. Lord, that you love us even though we run from you. God, as we go through this book, Lord, I just pray that we would have a deeper love for you. God, grow grow us in our faith. God, may there not be any false gods that our worship is muddled with, Lord. May we worship you rightly. And Lord, uh, we we just pray that you would be honored in our lives, that you would convict us of sin during during this time and show us of your faithfulness as you have time and time again. In your name we pray, amen.